what founders need to be clear with is what do I want to achieve? If you're pursuing the first shipment of your product, then by all means, you need engineers. You don't need a manager, a high-level manager that will point fingers and say, do this, do that. You need yourself building that idea with a few other people around you, quick and dirty, taking shortcuts, regardless. You're sprinting to the finish line, which is version one in production. It will crash, it'll burn, you'll fix it. That's fine. You need to prove to your seed investors or or angel investors that you have something which you can ship. But once you've passed this point, when you're going to to raise a more serious round, like you, if you're going towards round A, if you, you've export, you've ex, let's say exceeded the, the seed money, you're going to round A or even round B, even more let's say more serious. You definitely need a CTO. Welcome to the latest edition of Clearview's Founder Vision Podcast, where we speak with founders and startup leaders about their journey. Today, we're joined um, by Tancho uh, Markovic, who is the CTO of IzzyCat. How are you today, Tancho? Hi. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm doing good. I'm a little bit, uh, let's say, under the weather today. Last week, was uh, I got a cold, so uh, I'm sorry in advance if I try to cough. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, other than that, I'm doing good. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about what IzzyCap does. Yeah, sure. So the company was founded about oh, more than five years ago. It uh, was a company that was bootstrapped for the first uh, couple of years. And then after a while, it discovered that it needed money to grow. So it raised round A. This was just before COVID. What the company does is kind of interesting. I think I'm going to give you a use case which everybody should relate to. You know how you go to stores and they offer you um, a membership card that has this barcode that you have to remember to have on you or to have an app that will scan the barcode and keep it on your phone? We do that without the barcode. Sounds stupid from, let's say, when you explain it this way, but like small merchants do not have the capability to put the infrastructure, software, management style to remember to give you the barcode scanner, to remember to scan the barcode scanner every time you're there. The user flow should be simple. In a sense, you go to the store, you buy your stuff and you leave. And you get the benefits you would get through the barcode by just using your credit card. So in a way, when you just pay with your credit card, we have already done the necessary shenanigans with regards to the barcode, membership, attach the transaction to your account, yada, yada, yada. You just get the rewards. The merchant has a simpler experience where they pay as the subscription fee monthly and they completely remove the hassle of the whole user case where they need to give you a card, they need to remember to scan the card. Like You, you can just forget about all of that. Just do your thing, and everybody wins. Okay. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember having to carry in an, an actual like card that merchants would, would punch yeah. you know, to get a free sandwich or something, right? Exactly. So, so this is interesting. So this is like a, a loyalty platform for local brick and mortar merchants and it's tied into whatever card you're you, you're using so you pay and then what it it tracks your benefits just based on the the card let's say in a more engineering specific approach I'm going to try to give you the same use case you purchase on a post uh, a payment terminal with your card your card gets tokenized our system tries to see if it knows that token or not if it doesn't you're not a member if it does you are a member if you are a member, transactions attributed to your account. If you're not a member, a pop-up shows up on the terminal that says, do you want to become a loyalty member of this shop? If you opt in, 
you become. If you don't, nothing happens. When you are a member, these transactions, atomic ones even, they would be attributed to your account as life goes on. And for example, if the store said at, I don't know, at 10, at 100 euros, we're in Europe, so at 100 euros, you get 10% off on the next purchase. Next time you come in, you have a voucher which you can redeem with the, with the shop and you get the, let's say, it asks, it, it, let's say, incentivizes people to come back to the shop, which is why it's very interesting to the merchants. It also gives the merchants the capability to reach out to their audience, to the people who are uh, the loyalty members. Oh, very cool. So I, I guess just one more question on that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of assuming that like if somebody comes in and they, they use a different card than what they had used when they originally signed up, they'll get that prompt because you don't recognize that that's a card linked to a loyalty member. And then that additional card, it, does that get linked back to their, or their original account? Exactly. So there's two ways. When you get a new account, you can be proactive as a member and you can go to our portal and add your account. So basically you insert it into a browser, it gets tokenized on the spot. So the token for the card is stored in the server. So we can recognize the card because we can't transmit the actual card itself. And if you're not proactive, which is fine, because like I personally am not, I don't want to care about adding my card to the 50 shops, which I'm a member of. I show up there, I do my purchase. I get the opt-in prompt because it's a new card. The system doesn't know me. I punch in my number. The system then attributes that token as a new card to my account. So nothing changes. There's just this one step, which is intermediary when you show up with a new account. Interesting. So I, I live in, in South America in Colombia currently. And uh, it's interesting here that local commerce is like really dominated by like WhatsApp. As far as like communication platforms, how, mm-hmm. what is that? Is WhatsApp huge in Europe as well? Or? Yeah, WhatsApp is huge in Europe. So it depends. Europe is a big, big place. And because Europe has multiple countries, which have multiple, I'd say, characters, it depends on location by location basis. If you go to, Euro- to Eastern Europe, there's an app called Viber, which is more popular. I think it's in the South of America as well. If you go to Spain and Portugal, communication for businesses is more popular on, on WhatsApp. But in France, SMS is king for some reason. So we today support email and SMS because we were primarily in France. We are about to launch two commercial markets, which are, uh, let's say, allowing us to get out of France and go onto onto European soil. And one of the things that we discussed was uh, what's up for business, so exactly what you're talking about. It's actually quite nice because it's, uh, it's much cheaper, it's less restrictive. Uh, with SMS, you know, uh, let's say France has these accented uh, characters. So if you type an E with an accent, which is pronounced like you would in English, that takes two characters. So then you need to educate merchants that the message which they typed, which is 160 characters, is actually 120 because they used an accent. You know, WhatsApp is more permissive in this regard. So it's on our plan. It's on our roadmap because we're about to launch outside of France. In France, people perceive WhatsApp messages as too interpersonal. So they don't want businesses to go in on WhatsApp. Isn't that interesting how... Depending on how a platform gets started in a, in a country, it really kind of changes, you know, the character of, of how that platform gets used regionally. Yeah. It's crazy how much like payments and, and, you know, local merchants are changing right now. It's like a real revolution in, you know, how we do business with each other. Even payments, like come to think about it in, if you think globally, you're thinking, let's say payment industry, right? You're thinking... MasterCard, Visa, and Amex, right? That, that's kind of 90% of the world. 
in anybody's head if you don't put them in context. If I put you in context, context being restaurants, in France, payment industry changes because you don't you no longer pay via Visa or MasterCard. You pay via a national payment processor, which supports Visa and MasterCard, but supports something called TK Resto, so restaurant tickets, meal vouchers, where like this is a friendly it's not just France. There's like in France in France, in Italy, in Portugal, in Spain, I think as well, they have this they have this concept of uh, of lunch vouchers where you get a, a physical card that looks like it, it might even be stamped by Visa, but it's not real money per se, right? It's a different payment application. So, like, the world's an amazing place. Like, you can go from here 50 kilometers to the south. So you would enter Italy. Different rules apply. I'm based in, in the south of France, in Nice. So from, from where I am right now, you move just, what, let's say 30 miles, right? You get in a different country where different rules apply. Not only the language is different, but the, the way people interact with their phones, the way people expect to be communicated by businesses is completely different. Right. And of course, that creates a barrier if you're trying to, if, if, if they're, a company is trying to do what you do in France, but they've, they're coming from like the US mentality of how shopping gets done. Exactly. There's so many nuances to, to learn. It kind of creates a little bit of a, a moat for, for, for those businesses. As you said, like in, in the South of America, WhatsApp is quite popular, right? So you would be expecting a communication from a business to go there. But if, you, if, if a French person receives a message on WhatsApp, they would be like, why are they even pinging me on WhatsApp? That's where I like, like chat with my mom. You know, I don't want you here. Yeah. And at least when I was living in the US, the, nobody used WhatsApp. I'm sure that has changed. You know, but it was when I first arrived and like everything was was WhatsApp. It was like a, a big surprise because I knew that it, that product existed, you know, because Facebook had acquired it and I knew it was, you know, big in other markets. But I really had no like idea it was as big as it was because in the U.S. It, at that time, yeah. it was not big at all. But well, interesting. So now you're the CTO for for Izzy Cap. Like, tell us a little bit about your background. Like, how did you get, you know, what, yeah. what's been your career progression? What are some of the interesting you know places you've worked and projects you've worked on that you can share with us sure so about about 10 years ago i moved to france and i moved to work in a university which sounded interesting like france was a challenge from a perspective of um, i didn't know the language didn't know the culture didn't i knew nothing about it and that was like one of the good reasons to, to choose the country to go to right uh, so my, my vocabulary in French at the time was bonjour. That was about it. Anything you reply, I couldn't tell you how many words you just said. Like my, my level of French was to the point where I couldn't repeat what French people would say to me. I just could not go there. <laughs> um, we, and I worked at a, in a university. Um, I was kind of the liaison between companies and, um, and, um, and the school. I could understand, I had enough uh, academic knowledge to understand what the PhDs are doing. But I had a lot of experience, which would tell me what the companies are expecting from them as a delivery. Uh, this was in the south of France, which was like 50 kilometers away from Paris, so quite difficult to navigate. Like it was not the life I expected to have. So five months in, I decided to quit and kind of my journey starts. So I joined a company called Dashlane, which is a password manager. I was employee number like uh, under 10. I can't remember exactly how many we were in the office, but quite few. Uh, you know the kind of uh, startup where you're in a in an apartment where the walls, the the bedroom of the apartment is the meeting room. The walls are peeling. That's where I, that's where we were. 
Oh, it's funny. I, I knew the founders at, at Dashlane like pretty early on, not like, like like super well or anything, but I had met with them when they were like a company of, of like nine people, I think. So I, probably, I was probably there when you spoke to them. Because like <laughs> time-wise, if it was a single-digit number, I was probably about to join or just joined. Oh, wow. And so in any case, I was there for five years. I went from a single engineer on mobile to leading the, the Android team. We managed to do amazing things there. Like, it, it's very nice when you have the capability to write the first line of code for a platform and then see the 100,000th user on the platform. So it went from shipping version one, seeing it crash a million times, trying to fix it, etc. you know, like the, the, the deal. The fun story which happened there, we had like this, they had the capability, the, the chance to work with um, a Googler from, he was Scottish, based in California. So the weirdest mix of accents you can find. We managed to find a common language. So we were thinking of, I was abusing the accessibility SDK in Android. Google was not too happy. So one of the people which worked in the authentication team reached out. And the deal was like, can we provide you with a different option? Because there was no other option that they could they could use to do what they needed to do, which is detect a form on the screen. Long story short, we worked on this open source project for about a year. And the project was an API which got shipped in Google Play services. So I was like super happy at this point in time because something I wrote was shipped on all the Android devices in the world. Like even if it was like one line, there was a lot of contributors. I was one of the, the founding ones with Ian. But what we wrote shipped on all the devices in the world. And that's like an amazing thing. Five years in, I decided to, to do a career kind of company shift. So I started looking at the market and I had a, like I was looking for companies which would give me the concept of the possibility to grow. Right? I was working in, in Dashlane. I was quite in a very nice place there, but I'm not known to be comfortable in the comfort zone. I wanted to, re- to leave the comfort zone. So I joined a company called Content Square. It was a company of 100 people at the time when I joined, but still extremely, like let's say, just after round eight. So still very early on. Uh, still, the company was a couple, of, a couple of years old. And then the deal was I wanted to take over more than mobile. So we kind of set up a deal where... There were some targets they needed to hit. And the problem that the company had was like it didn't... What Content Square does is they inject an SDK into your app. You inject the SDK. You do no changes in code. The app, the SDK intercepts all the events of the finger towards the screen and tries to understand what you're doing. So to the person delivering the app. So imagine you are using... um, Give me an app here. Let's say you're using WhatsApp, right? If If the SDK is injected in WhatsApp, at build time, of course... I would be able to see the whole use cases to how you use WhatsApp. I can see which menus are you're triggering, how much time you're spending on your screen. Think of Google Analytics without adding the tags. The fun part was they did this for the web, but not for mobile. And mobile was the primary source of, of traffic for, net, for for the internet, like for people of uh, that use e-commerce, which was the primary target that Content Square was trying to hit. So we managed to, I managed to hire a team. Like I was the first engineer there on mobile. I managed to hire a team and I started figuring out problems in the overall platform where the way it was built, it couldn't digest mobile traffic because of the nature of mobile. What I mean by that is like when you're browsing the internet, you have um, an active network connection. So any data you send, the server receives because you're actively browsing. On mobile, you could be in in a train doing something. So it needs to store the events, partially send them, resend afterwards. You know, this whole concept, the system couldn't digest. So we started changing. It got attributed with... um, a team, and this team was uh, working with me, so it was part mobile, part backend, part data. So we started building a parallel system. 
long story short, in about 12 months, we managed to sign the first contract, which, were mo- which was mobile exclusive in the company. So quite a nice win. And then I got an offer from a company called Symphony, Symphony Communications. It's based out of California to join their team, move to the south of France, which was quite interesting for me, like the, the south of France part. They didn't know much about the company because it was in the banking industry. So I couldn't use it as, a, as an end user. But the deal was they offered the title, which was director of engineering, which I had no idea what it meant. So out, it kind of pulls me out of the comfort zone. So the deal is like, why not? Let's go with it. I did interviews and I said to them, like, I don't know what the title means. I would like through the interviews for you to convince me I'm a good match, which, I mean, they convinced me I was a good match because they said so. I didn't still understand it. And I joined this company, which in France had like four people. The company was quite big when I joined, like post round C, I think, at the time. But the French location was like six or seven people when I joined. I was one of the more senior managers. I think we were two at the time that that focused on the growth. One of the things that we needed to do was uh, grow our respective teams and migrate them from one location to another because my teams were dispersed between Vietnam, Brazil, Stockholm, Nice. I had a a few uh, a guy in Macau as well, so all over the globe. I had to centralize more within France, but on the site itself, we had to grow. So we managed to grow for within like 15, 18 months, we grew from six to 135 people. And like this kind of a growth, you need to really sit down and plan. It's not just doing interviews, like hiring 130 people takes probably 600 candidates to screen or more, if you're, if you're lucky. It's definitely a full-time job at that point. Oh yeah. So there, Within the, the time I spent with Symphony, I didn't understand director, but I got promoted to a senior director along the way. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, and then after like two something years there, I got a ping from a, an executive search company that um, offered this job, which was a, a CTO in a company of the size of a company I used to work in the past. So kind of the size was uh, convenient, let's say, and, and known. So I decided to accept the job and here I am. So I'm curious for companies out there that They've got a little bit of traction and maybe they're looking to hire a CTO or, well, first, like what is the decision-making process that a founder should go through when deciding, does my next hire need to be a CTO or more individual contributors? And at, at that early stage, like what are some of the characteristics of, you know, an engineering leader that founders should be looking for? This is probably like the million dollar question, right? When do you hire a CTO and what kind? I don't think there's one answer. What you need to be very clear, I mean, what the, let's say what founders need to be clear with is what do I want to achieve? If you're pursuing the shipment, the first shipment of your product, then by all means, you need engineers. You don't need a manager, a high level manager that will point fingers and say, do this, do that. You need yourself building that idea with a few other people around you, quick and dirty, taking shortcuts, regardless. You're sprinting to the finish line, which is version one in production. It will crash, it'll burn, you'll fix it. That's fine. You need to prove to your seed investors or, or angel investors that you have something which you can ship. But once you've passed this point, when you're going to, to raise a more serious round, like you, if you're going towards round A, if you, you've export, you've ex, let's say exceeded the, the seed money, you're going to round A or even round B, even more, let's say, more serious, you definitely need a CTO. What kind? That's the other question, the other part of the question. You need to know your team. You need to know whether the team is experienced enough and they need a good manager to make sure that they have the right, in the right moment, you stop to think, you set up the architecture so that it can scale, it can grow. 
or maybe you have um, a team which is not as experienced and then you want to hire a CTO which is more hands-on that will push the younger engineers to make the right choices. So you really need to look at it in a case, on a case-by-case basis. But when it comes to companies which are before round B, I would definitely suggest to find a CTO which is energetic and hands-on. If you've done what I proposed, let's say with a seed round, which is you've cut corners to make sure that you ship, when it comes to round A, especially round B, investors are going to start asking for specific things. I can even give you a few questions which I had from technical due diligences from partnerships or from investment rounds, but like they're generally the same. Yeah, well, what are some of those questions? I'm, I'm curious. So where does your system break if you have 100 times more data, right? And usually when it comes to a scaling issue, like there's a single point of failure depending on which area of the system you're looking at. So the other thing, like let's say I'm going to try to, to shoot a few questions that come directly to my head. What's your cost to serve? And the cost to serve is comprised of two parts. It's comprised of the infrastructure cost which you have, but it's also comprised of, of the human cost you have. Some companies build their systems around human interaction. So, for example, you have support. And in order for people to continue using the service, they might need support, for example, approximately 0.5 support requests per person per month. That means that you need to have a support team dedicated to this. So in order to scale, you'll have to scale the human factor as well. If you start looking for investor indicators, you're probably going to find a ton of uh, short abbreviations, like three letters, which will be very insightful numbers that will pinpoint the financial stability of your company or your product. I'm not going to focus on, that, on those because you can probably find them in a medium post. Like um, if I send a re- so here's another one. If I send a bogus request with a fake password, how deep does it enter your infrastructure? So try you have a form. Imagine the Facebook form, right? You try to log in with your username and your password, and you know the password's wrong. So when you type in a string which is "Hello World," how deep in the system does it go? Does it fail in the beginning because there's some way to authenticate the password or do you go all the way to the user's database where the passwords the hashes hopefully not the passwords themselves the hashes of the passwords are stored and to think about these kinds of things you might need to be compliant for example we're working with credit card information so we are PCIDSS compliant so that specifically means something so if you're working in a sector where security is, is crucial you need to know which aspect of security my previous company was ISO 27001 and SOC 2 certified. Different security rules applied. And this you cannot get through just the random senior engineer you can find that would be really good at building your product, but not good at selling your business to an investor. And so let's say round A and above, you need somebody that will have these kinds of experiences that will be able to point you to the problems you have ahead of time. Because when you get to the investors and you start asking for money, you might get to a point where they'll see the future of the product, but they'll give you a low valuation and a high investment. So imagine you get valued at 50 million and they give you 20 million. They just purchased 40% of the company. But if you get 20 million for 200 million valuation, they just purchased 10% of the company. So for you, good thing is small investment, big valuation, because they get the smaller piece, right? And to do this, to have this proper balance of things, you need to be sure that the person that you have technically next to you is a person that knows these things ahead of time. They've been, they've been in the game. They've been asked for the difficult questions and they can ask them to the team and make the appropriate changes ahead of time. And, and how involved would, would you or, or a CTO be in that kind of due diligence? Is it a lot of due diligence with the CTO at Series A or not until Series B? 
I wasn't here at Series A. I joined just out, joined a, a little bit after. I did due diligence for a few strategic commercial partnerships that we that we have as a company. So we're part of Mastercard's uh, starter path, uh, where Mastercard's helping us reach out to to partner banks that they work with to to establish a commercial commercial relationship. So we had to go through the technical due diligence of Mastercard itself, and then we had to go through the technical due diligence of every partner. So I, me, and the VP of Customer Success. Uh, working hand in hand to to deliver these. Um, I'd say usually the way that we split the work is if it's legal, the customer, the VP of customer success takes over. If it's purely technical, I take over. So when it says what's your SLA for uptime, what's your response time to production level one incidents, or what is the encryption mechanism you use to encrypt your data at rest, that's usually that usually comes to me. And then when it says like. Let's see if it comes to legal aspects of things where it's contractual. That's the, the VP of customers today. So I would say pretty much involved, like very heavily involved. Okay. Think about it this way. If you're a technology company, what you do is you write lines of code for which you ask for money for people to use. That's your digital asset. That's, that's what you do. If you're a carpenter, you sell your skill of building chairs. If you're an engineer, you sell your skill of writing code. You ask people to pay you money to use your code. When somebody else needs to invest into that code, they need to either see it or ask difficult questions like these that you have to answer, which will give them the confidence to give you money. So talk to me about how you approach interviewing and and hiring developers and how that approach changes when you're, you know, just hiring one or two at a time versus when you're trying to scale up the team much more quickly. Yeah, mass hiring. So mass hiring, I did in my previous job, uh, which I mentioned, like we hired like 130 plus engineers. And I'm doing, let's say, cherry picking in this company because we're not hiring that many, but we're really trying to find good um, skilled engineers. I try to, so like in coding, even in hiring, you have kind of three, you have the triplet of, of success. You, have, you can either focus on quality, scope, or time, and you need to sacrifice something. So in, in the terms of hiring, you have speed hiring, you can have genius engineers, or you can have good team players. So if you're careful, you're going to, usually I try to sacrifice time. I try to find people who are good engineers and good team players at the cost of hiring them with an elongated period of time, like looking for them very, very, let's say for a longer period of time. When you do mass hiring, you need to, you cannot do it yourself. The 130 plus people, which I mentioned, I just helped design the process. I didn't hire all of them myself. I built a team around me with people who helped me, who actually did the interviews for most of the people. I was one of the interviewers of the group, but I, I worked on building a group of people. I personally work well in a team, and I prefer working in a team than working by myself. So mass hiring, you need a group of people that will dedicate a percentage of time on interviews. You can you can schedule it. You can make sure that there's like, like enough time attributed, etc. But at the end of the day, this takes time. Hiring in the U.S. is a little bit different than hiring in France. Um, in France, we have the French labor law, which really protects people. So once you hire, it's like a marriage. It's very difficult to to let people go. So you could be less careful in in the U.S. because of the let's say ease of letting somebody else go. In France, it's not that easy. So we're even more careful to make sure that when people join. They don't leave unless they leave on their own. So the actual process itself, I try to, to think in the following way. I want to see code. I want to speak to you. 
and I want to see how you think. Kind of that's my guideline. There's an HR call, so they speak to you. Then there's a phone screen by the hiring manager. If I'm the hiring manager, I'm going to try to book a 30-minute call. And in that 30-minute call, I'm going to try to understand who you are and how smart you are. And that's super difficult, but also how honest you are. So these are like super difficult things to do in a short period of time, especially 30 minutes. So trying to, let's say my phone screen, I try to split into five minutes of sending the company and introducing myself, right? Who we are, because I'm assuming we reached out to you and you don't know much about us because most of the time I've been working in B2B companies. So you're not exposed to us as a, as a product, right? Even better if you are, because then you don't have to sell. You, the person would know the product. Then I try to go through asking what you do. And I try to ask you questions about the projects you work on. If it's projects you work on, you're probably more expert at them than I am. You should be able, as an engineer, to go deeper into technical, let's say not going too deep, but explain technical topics with ease. I should be able to fully understand the, pr- the, the problem you're descri- describing. And I will ask you questions out of interest for what you're explaining, but I focus on one problem. So let's say, let's say I worked on a, in a company that built a communication suit. So I would focus on which technology do you use to actually exchange messages? How do you deal with lag on runtime, on real-time communication? What do you do when it comes to uh, reaching out to a person who is in a train while on the call? How do you deal with lag, etc.? I would try to pick those difficult topics and try to see how much you are able to explain, even if you didn't work on them. I, I need to see your understanding of things. And then I try to dig into a subject where you, tell, where you say, I don't know. This is something which is super important to me. For example, I would, if you're a Java engineer, I would try to ping you about something in native code in C++ or whatnot. I don't want you, like, I'm, I'm trying to find a subject for which you're, say, you're going to honestly say, oh, I don't know how this works. If you're capable to, ta- to say, I don't know during an interview, you're definitely going to say that in the actual day-to-day work, right? I want to have people that will not bullshit me. I want to have people that will not... not invent things out of thin air, right? I want to have people who are down to the ground and they're honest about what, what works and what doesn't. So these are kind of the, the let's say, the tips and trick, tricks. I build um, an opinion based on how the person describes technical topics, how much they synthesize them into a simple answer. I don't want to have somebody that will kind of, kind of go down the rabbit hole. Then I have like three stages, which are kind of standard, which is I either ask for code which the person wrote, which is open source, or a mini project that they did for anyone, which we evaluate, or we give them a project. And then this is kind of a mini homework. And then we have a behavioral interview, um, a whiteboard interview, and a project interview. Project being the code you shipped to us. Uh, Whiteboard is a problem-solution kind of approach. We focus on solving a problem together. Right, so there's a ton of websites where you can see problems. You can go to YouTube and see videos of actual whiteboard topics. I'm not going to focus on that too much. The only thing I would say is in Europe, whiteboard interviews are not that popular. They are very much in the US, but not here. So I try to modify the approach where I'm not looking for a genius that will create compilable code on the whiteboard. I'm looking for a person with whom I can have a deep conversation about a problem using the standard tools that we work on the day-to-day basis with. I need to know that you know what a set is, what a hash map is, and how they work, and like the details of it. Is the, the whiteboard exercise, is that is that generally to kind of weed out the people that actually know how to write the code versus the ones that just know how to go find, you know, <laughs> how to Google, how to yeah. get something? Actually, so this is, I think this is the purpose behind whiteboard interviews. 
I try to skew that into a different direction. For me, the whiteboard is we look at the problem together and I don't want you to code that much. I'll code for you. That's fine. I can write the code. I want you to tell me which code to write. I want to figure out how you think because every time you're going to solve the problem, I'm going to throw a wrench in your feet by changing it a little bit so that this code doesn't work anymore. I want to see how you adapt. For the actual writing of the code, we can even do it. Like I have problems which I do with candidates where we cannot do video. So we talk over the problem. And I have problems which we can discuss. So there's no code. But the idea is just to see how you think. I want to attack a problem which is unknown to you, which takes you out of the comfort zone. And I want to see how you try to disassemble the problem. It's not about the code that you export. It's fine if it doesn't compile. It's fine if you don't even write it. I want to see how you think out loud. Hear how you think out loud. When you've gone through this kind of a process and someone hasn't worked out, what 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 is typically the reason? You know that did someone just happen to fool you in the interview, or were there other factors that were less about aptitude and more about you know aptitude or execution? Um, I personally, when I do interviews, I've kind of fine tuned my spidey senses to sniff out a good engineer. What's difficult to sniff out is a good team player. So I've had cases where we hired a person that ended up being toxic. This happens, right? Sometimes the person is in a very good mindset during the interview because they're about to leave their company. They're seeing it's going, go- it's going good. So they're very positive during the interview process, very open, etc. Then things change after they join. After a couple of months, maybe they decide they don't like the team. Maybe there's like this new person that's pissing them off, whatever. And they switch mentalities. This is tough, right? Because at the end of the day, regardless how brilliant you are, you're just one person. If you're polluting 10 other people, then like probably the problem is not with them, it's you, it's with you. Right. Now, do you find that 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 happens more often with engineers maybe who've, who've not worked in a startup environment before? Because I, one, one thing that's common, I mean, depending on when you're joining, but if you're like joining at like the seed or, or series A stage and you're joining in an engineering organization, Technical debt is going to exist. I mean, it's always going to exist, but a lot of times engineers joining a company at at those stages are coming into something that works on the outside, but on the inside, there's a lot more problems than people realize. Oh, yeah. And I always find that people, that if they don't just understand and accept that that's the reality of any, you know, technical business at, at that stage, they might quickly develop a bad attitude that thinking that, you know, people don't know what they're doing at this company and how could they let things be like this? And I mean, I have an allergy to technical debt, <laughs> but I've also been a person that created a lot of it. I can tell you, like, it's a fact. And I'm sure that I'm still producing technical debt nowadays. Um, the important thing for me is that um, even at a young age, if you're allergic to milk, you're going to find substitutes, even though you're like five years old, right? You're going to have juice and whatnot. It applies the same way in engineering. If you're, let's say, quote unquote, allergic to technical debt, you might skip unit testing, but you're going to build your code in a way that's testable. So you could at least catch up in the future. I don't mind people introducing technical debt. I mind people that don't care introducing technical debt. To give you a a very practical example, to a group of engineers that I work with, I shipped a commit to their project workspace where I disabled the keystroke command control D because the control D in IntelliJ duplicates the block of code that you've captured. 
it's a very subtle thing. I made code duplication to be a little bit, a little bit more difficult. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying like think three times if you're about to. I put a small tool that will block their build. It will mark it as unstable. It'll still pass. It'll just be gray, not green. So I wanted to kind of pick their interest if they introduce new methods which are public but don't have documentation inside. Everything works. It's just gray, not green. So if it pisses you off, write the documentation. You know? I want you to mind. That, that's it, right? Once, once you mind, once this is constantly in your head, you're going to find ways to introduce less of it. Simple and stupid example. Import, put a dependency injection tool instead of creating singletons. When you do decide to do unit tests, life will be much simpler. You don't have to re-architecture your app. You just need to write the tests. I mean, it's not as easy, right? But that's just one step in the direction. So I want you to mind. Now, now, what about the ultimate tech technical debt? And I'm using this term loosely here, but like when a, a business is forced to pivot because their original hypothesis was turned out to be incorrect. Now, obviously that can potentially create a lot of technical debt for an engineering team if, you know, depending yeah. on how, you know, the business is, is pivoting. How do you deal with that from for, within your teams and not just managing the you know, the, the new development that, that has to be made. And, and, but also, I, I guess, like helping the team understand that, you know, know all the work we did before, you know, it, it wasn't a waste, you know, we, we learned from it. And what we learned is, you know, we need to take a new approach. In the end, it kind of boils down to what I just said, like, you need to mine the technical debt. So first of all, what's the purpose of pivoting to a different direction? Because your business is forcing you to. If you want your company, if you want your product to continue living in a different shape, you need to make this change. This is absolute. Needs to happen, period. Fine. You had the time. You thought it through. You decide you need to pivot. Okay. When you do pivot, then you make the hard choices. So when it comes to modifying this, this, this product you've built in a, in a way to serve a different purpose, what stops you from kind of carving pieces with a knife in such a way that you can expose them to a different module to say, this is garbage that we'll have to rewrite in the future. This is explicitly technical debt. And this other stuff can stay. It's fine. But like, wrap it with a piece of wrapping paper so you know that this is it, right? This is the, this is the debt itself. It's not everywhere spreading like cancer. It's just localized in this big, smelly piece of like um, garbage, which we know we'll have to rewrite. Because you'll mind, you'll do it, but you'll label it, you know? And then you label it through CI/CD to say that piece of code fine, but for the rest, make sure that unit testing is there. That piece of code fine, but for the rest, make sure that the linting tools do not input, uh, do not throw warnings. Be aware of it. If you are, if you see it with your eyes open, you'll do the right choices in the long term. And then you like any piece, any technical that imagine that your application is 10% unit testing. You have a lot of incidents. You fix the incidents. Code is fine, but the tests didn't move. There's still 10%. If you want to move it to 90% tested, possible. How much does it cost? You get uh, a bunch of externals. You throw money at the problem, right? You get a bunch of externals. If you've done your job well, if you've designed the system to be testable, you'll give them money, they'll put unit tests, and then you put a change in your CICD to say, new code needs to be 90% tested. Problem fixed. Solved with an amount. It's a, it's a dollar. It's a euro, dollar, whatever. It's currency. You, you've solved the problem, but... You've sold it by paying other people to write tests. The important thing is the core product needs to be you, right? There's different kinds of technical debt. There's architecture, which is even more difficult, right? Because then you have to 
change the engine of the car while running, while driving at 100, 100 miles an hour. That's more difficult. I've been there as well. So if you mind, you're going to compartmentalize the debt into sections which stink. You close the door and you leave it there, right? The horse that wins, you don't change. So leave it be, but at one point invest because at the end of the day, your company builds, any company builds assets. And your assets are lines of code. Code has a life cycle of five years. One human year equals 20 code years. So something which is five years old is the equivalent of a hundred-year-old human. It doesn't work good. You need to make sure that your code is like, it's like a steak, right? You marinate it, you keep it properly, like in, in you properly clean it, you properly put salt and pepper, whatever, whatever makes you happy. But you, you take care of it. If you take a slab of meat and throw it on the floor, you come back three days later, what will happen to it? It will not be good to be eaten, right? So you need to invest in your assets. Your, your code is your asset for, for a company. So you, you actually, this has been a great conversation. We're almost out of time, but you actually led me into kind of the last question, I, you know, last questions I wanted to ask you, and uh, which is, what are your top three investment priorities right now for the, you know, for the next year to like either improve your, your engineering team or just improve the product overall? Like where, what are you looking to invest in? Imagine it's technical debt. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're trying to do is we're trying to focus on reducing our cost to serve. It's one of the things I described at the beginning. We have made architectural choices in the past, which we needed to make to get where we are. But now that we're there, we need to make different architectural choices so that we reduce the infrastructure cost to serve a single customer. That's one. There are technical decisions to be made to get to there, but the primary reason is this, because we want to reduce the amount of money that we spend on services to provide service, to provide our service to the customer. The second thing is we want to do, while we're doing this, we want to uh, focus on scaling. Uh, we want to be able to consume, uh, let's say, I think our target was 10 times more data than what we consume today without affecting the cost to serve. So this is the second topic. And the third topic is, I mean, it's kind of linked, right? All of it is, is uh, intertwined. Uh, the, the, the third, if, if it has to be three, the third topic would be while doing this, reduce the amount of technical debt. Technical debt by us is comprised of testability of code and the quality of code and like through tools you can actually measure this and quantify it in a number okay and and what uh you know for if there's engineers out there who are interested in joining your team what's your tech stack what do you what do you look for what are you looking to hire for in the next yeah three six months i think a stack uh is front end is javascript uh, sorry typescript and react we have a, a previous stack which is frozen, so we're not touching that, and we're just investing in new, revamping our product by investing in React and, and TypeScript for the front end. Spring Boot and Java for the back end. We're basically, basically write, rewriting, let's say, a monolith into microservices by carving out a piece, rewriting it, shipping it, and then doing another. Data is Java and potentially uh, Scala on Spark. And our infrastructure is built on dockerized uh, microservices. Basically, the whole stack that we're building is we're trying to rebuild our whole products piece by piece into micro frontends and micro services, which are each feature is comprised of a micro frontend and a microservice, which serves as a backend. And the features communicate through each other uh, in a way that gives you the full experience. And for uh, the the engineers out there who might be interested and qualified for, for all of that, What's your 30-second pitch on joining Izzy Cap? So 
I like working with smart people that challenge what we do on a day-to-day basis. And if you are interested in joining a place where you can speak your mind and push your, have the ability to push your ideas to production, we want to talk to you. Awesome. Well, Tancho, it's been great having you today. This has been really informative. For those listeners out there, we'll put the URL in the information field, but you can find IzzyCap at www.izicap.com. Thanks so much, Tancho. It was great having you. Thank you for having me.